the Marketing Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Barker, and today I have with me Greg Poirier, the president and founder of Cloud Kettle. He is a seasoned professional, and he's always at the helm of technological innovation. Greg provides SaaS companies with groundbreaking sales and marketing solutions and consultations. His company, Cloud Kettle, helps B2B enterprises leverage cloud solutions to grow their revenue and scale their operations. He has spoken at a number of industry events like Sales Machine and Digital Summary and was awarded the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2018. On this episode, Greg will walk us through his early days in Canada and talk about his stint in enterprise sales. I'm excited to find out how he came up with the idea of Cloud Kettle and what differentiates his company from the competition. Hey guys, what's going on? Shane Barker here. we got Greg Poirier today uh, from Cloud Kettle. And Greg, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, man. Hey, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm really, actually really, really excited about today's podcast. Um, we haven't really had anybody in regards to the expertise of your background on the podcast. And so this is kind of a first for us. And I, I think I've gotten quite a few emails about people saying, hey, when are we going to start talking about cloud stuff? And so I said, all right, well, then here we are. So, so we reached out to you guys and you guys were gracious enough to do the podcast with us. So um, I'm excited, really, really excited about this episode today. Um, and as we usually do with the podcast, I just want to start off um, for people that haven't ever met Greg or don't know Greg, I start off with just some questions that get to know a little bit about you and your background and where you grew up. And so we'll, we'll kind of start that off. Like, where did you, where did you actually grow up, Greg? So I'm a Canadian. Uh, I grew up in a very small rural community on the East coast of Canada. So if you were to, I guess, leave Maine and then drive really North and really East, uh, basically, um, you know, where Cape Breton Island ends, which is one of the easternmost points of Cape Breton and the ocean begins. That's uh, that's where I grew up. Not the most remote place in Canada, but it's it's probably up there. But it sounds like, I mean, because I've been to Canada, not necessarily where you're from, but Canada's beautiful. Like just when you start to get in those remote areas, it probably was absolutely stunning. Yeah, I mean, I was really lucky that uh, I, you know, I grew up uh, very close to the Cabot Trail, which is one of Canada's marquee tourism destinations. And people fly there from all over the world to marvel at the mountains and the oceans. And, you know, for me, that was a given. And we just did stuff in those mountains and that ocean every day. And you kind of take it for granted until you move away. That's what I was just thinking. That's that's what always happens, right? And you're like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And you're like, wait a second, this is a huge deal. And the fact that I was able to you know, go to the mountains or go to the beach and, and really had that in my backyard is, is, a, is a blessing. So that's awesome. So do you go back and visit often or no? Uh, probably around two or three times a year. Um, okay. It's a six hour drive, so it's doable, but, um, you know, I've got two small kids and that makes a six hour drive like an eight uh, hour drive. So yeah, yeah, you're, 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 drive. Committing. yeah you're committing, <laughs> you're committing. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. That's definitely a commitment. Six hours, an hour or two. Yeah feasible six hours is like all right we got to bring snacks we got to yep. do this we got to you know drug the kids not drug the kids but you know whatever we need to do to, to keep them happy it's ipads it's movies it's the full the full shebang so you're and how old are your kids uh they are um seven and nine okay gotcha gotcha guys see i my son's 21 so he went off to college so i'm i'm I, i'm all through that but you're in the middle of it you're in the thick of it Yes, we are very much in the thick of it. <laughs> he said that's exactly what I am. And I'm knee deep in the thick of it. That's awesome. How, how big was your family growing up? Uh, pretty small family. Um, I have one sister. 
uh, as a kind of, I guess, nuclear family, for lack of a better term, but a much larger extended family. So I grew up across the street from my grandparents and um, then going a little broader within a couple hours drive, I had 14 aunts and uncles and too many cousins to count. Um, wow. So yeah, very big family. Big old family. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of, that's interesting. Do, and this is a totally naive question. Do Canadians usually have big families? I mean, I'm just trying to, I always think of, the reason I say that is I have like friends that are Hispanic and it's just, they usually have, they have these family reunions that they meet relatives that they didn't even meet at the last family reunion. Like it becomes this big thing. Yeah, um, I think you hit on something there, uh, which is it's not Canadians that have big families. It's uh, probably Catholics that have big families. Oh, so yeah, uh, my um, non-Catholic side of the family, I have one aunt and one uncle. And my Catholic side of the family, I have 14 aunts and uncles. And I don't know how many cousins. Literally producers. That was their goal. Yeah. It's like, hey, let's just let's get as much as we can. But that's funny. One on one side and the other side is like, you know, 14 million people. And the other side is one person. They're like, because we're just not Catholic. We converted, which is OK. Um, so what are some interesting facts? I mean, I think that's an interesting fact that, you know, you have one side of the family has like one family member and the other one has, you know, seven million. What any other interesting facts growing up where you grew up? Um, I mean, what's changed is really interesting. I grew up in a really small rural fishing community. My parents were teachers. And so we were one of the only families that didn't either fish or work at the fish plant or somehow do something with fishing. Um, and we grew up on a really big plot of land, which was probably pretty close to free when my parents got it. Um, but what's really changed now is it's a tourism hotspot. And, um, you know, there's this um, mountain um, that kind of overlooks our house. And, you know, growing up, we'd climb that, you know, maybe once a month. And if you met, you would never meet anybody um, when you're hiking that trail. And uh, the last time I was home this summer, we took our kids on it. And we probably passed 20 people going up and down that. And it's, it's just that view from the top of that mountain has gotten super popular on Instagram. And now it's just, a steady stream of people going up and down it. And also when I was a kid, you know, there was kind of one very old, like hundred year old, um, very fancy golf course. None of us ever played there, obviously, but um, now they, they've built a lot of very high end golf courses. So, you know, now we see people flying in on private jets and parking enormous luxury yachts um, off the coast uh, to go to these golf courses, which is, Definitely not something that was happening when I was growing up. Isn't that crazy? Because your, your, your parents pretty much, not that they got the land for free, but they probably, and for them, they probably thought it was expensive. You know, hey, it's just 3000 whatever the number is. And people are like, oh, that's crazy. And now today you're like, you got to be kidding me. Like this is like, this, this city's absolutely blown up. And the comparison to when you grew up to now is like apples and oranges. Yeah, I mean, our plot of land runs from the uh, water all the way up um, to the, back of a mountain. And, um, you know, that's obviously pretty incredible, but I do know when my dad bought it. I believe it was a couple of thousand dollars. This would have been 1976, 77. It was a couple of thousand, no, maybe 78, a couple of thousand bucks. And he agreed to build, um, the lady that cupboards for her kitchen. Cause he was a shop teacher. I love that. That's yeah. so that I, I think the return on investment was probably pretty high probably i don't know the amount but i'm pretty sure that might have been the best investment your dad's ever made probably which is uh, and not knowing it at that time and looking at it now going good job yeah we appreciate that we appreciate that and also just growing up in that environment sounds like that kind of the, the small sleepy town 
but um, a, a lot of things to do in regards to, you know, I, I guess outside of tech, there was not a lot of tech back then, but at least the outdoors stuff. I'm a huge outdoors fan. So it's like anytime I get a chance to go on a hike, go on a walk, grab my dog, grab my wife, grab friends, like I'm, I'm all for that. Um, and I have some good friends that grew up in, you know, rural areas that really, once again, didn't really appreciate it until they were gone. Like, okay, that's actually awesome that I grew up there. You know, I mean, there's upsides and downsides, small town, but um, I think it's awesome. And then where are you, where are you at currently? So I live in Halifax, Nova Scotia now. So that's the capital city um, for Halifax and the largest city in Canada, east of Montreal. Uh, so, you know, it's not New York uh, by any means, but it's largest in Canadian standards. Um, you know, but I've made most of my career in Seattle and San Francisco. So I, I live on the east coast of Canada and I love it. Um, but I spend about a, well, pre-COVID, I would spend about a week a month in Seattle or San Francisco. Um, you know, I was very lucky, uh, kind of when I started down this, uh, SAS career, probably close to a decade ago, um, that I was going to New York and San Francisco pretty frequently after Salesforce acquired Radian 6. Mm. And I just, at that point in time, I didn't have kids yet. Um, I, was dating my wife, but we weren't married. And, you know, we had the option, we could have moved anywhere. And certainly I was thinking, we were thinking about, you know, Boston, New York, other places. And I just started going there a lot for business and realized, wow, you know, I can own a house, I can have a yard and I can walk to work or I can live in San Francisco and not have any of those things. And so, you know, the decision was pretty easy that I would rather fly once a week than, you know, drive for 45 minutes to work and 45 minutes back every day. San Francisco, I mean, cause I live, I'm an hour and a half from San Francisco. My brother lives in San Francisco. I, I do like San Francisco, but it's nuts. Like just the, the cost of, I mean, you can go out there and make six figures, a good six figures and not be able to buy a house, which is just insane. Um, and the market's coming down there a little bit because I do real estate, which is a whole nother conversation. But a lot of the people from the Bay Area are coming to Sacramento because the resort, because remote living right now, they can, they don't have to be there. So that's pretty awesome. Now I will tell you Nova Scotia. So that like just recently has come on my radar, like majorly because my wife and I watched those little shows that like, Oh, here, build a house here, do this. And like, we saw it and I'm like, okay, so how do we get a house in Nova Scotia? And how do I retire in Nova Scotia? Because like, it looks like a painting out of like some perfect area. Like it looks like an amazing, amazing city. And I have to tell him, I'm embarrassed to tell you that I haven't been there yet, but it's, you know, after COVID, after we all get vaccinated or, or we all die or whatever happens, um, I, I plan on coming out there. I'm going to come out there and, and I don't, hopefully I can say hi to you, have a beer or something like that, maybe even shake hands. I mean, I know that yeah. sounds crazy during these COVID times. It's, I'm really kind of, I'm reaching far there by saying maybe we'll high five from a distance, but either way, we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, and then where did you go to college at? Uh, so I went to Dalhousie in Halifax. Um, Canada doesn't have, you know, uh, an Ivy League university system the way that the U.S. does. But, you know, Dalhousie's probably close to 200 years old now. It's It would be in that tier of what mm -hmm. the Canadian Ivy Leagues would be if we had a system for that. And so I did my undergrad there. I, uh, I had five majors over a couple of years, but eventually graduated with an undergrad in psychology and poli-sci. Uh, realized uh, that that was actually not employable at all. Neither one of those degrees were employable at that point in time. <laughs> uh, and so, um, you know, after a bit, I went back and I did my MBA uh, down the street at uh, St. Mary's, which is one of the top business schools in Canada. That is awesome. Yeah. And that's, you had five, five majors. Now, 
was that, I mean, cause was that just because you were trying to figure different things out or why would I'm just curious on five majors? Like for me, I didn't graduate for 10 years and it wasn't because I was failing out. It's because I didn't want to go into the real world. Like I was traveling and then I would get like a full-time job with an agency or something. So what was your reason for five majors? Uh, well, certainly, I mean, my first year, it was a combination of, um, I would say a really poor high school program of understanding what you could do and um, way too much partying. So, I mean, you know, I, in high school, because I was doing well academically, I was, I was pushed in a very specific direction. It was kind of assumed that I would go do this certain thing. And like, when you're in high school, you don't know any different. I think kids are a lot more worldly now, but in, you know, circa 92, 93, it's not like you understand what those other options are. You're like, okay, these high school teachers are saying that this is the thing I'm good at and I should do. So I should just go do that. Um, And then I got to university and realized like, this sucks. I don't like science labs. I don't like biology labs. I don't like (laughs) physics labs. I don't like any of these things. And then I would meet the grad students who are kind of teaching you and they would tell me what their jobs were. And I'd be like, well, I don't want to graduate and do that. So I don't even like the thing that I would do after I graduate. So that was part of the problem. And then, you know, heavy, probably partying component of a small town, you know, guy who got to the big city and just had too much fun for the first year. Yeah. And then after that, it was just feeling out what I want to do. Um, And that, took a couple of at bats, but I got there. No, I, I, and I think that's common, especially, you know, I think the, and not to get into high school counselors and stuff, but I, I do think there's always a dis, there seems to be a disconnect with counseling, at least back in the day, because I graduated in 93 as well, where they were kind of like, I really want to do photography. And like, yeah, you'll never make money in photography. Like I won awards for photography and they were just, now nah, you're not going to, and which is, I'm not saying that photography would have been the way that I should have gone. Cause I jumped into marketing and I think I've done well there, but it's just interesting. Like, I mean, because I met with my counselor, I don't know how often you guys did in Canada, but I think I met with my counselor my senior year, maybe twice for 15 minutes. <laughs> like, what kind of assessment can you really make to like somebody's future and go, yeah, I met Shane twice for 15 minutes. And I think he really needs to be in sales. <laughs> yeah, I mean, oh, okay. I might have, I probably met my counselor more times than that because, you know, my entire grad class was like 52 people. Yeah. Um, it's notable because it was the largest grad class that school has ever had. And <laughs> there's a group of those 52 people in, if you grew up a small rural town that are, are, you know, those are the kids that are going to university. Um, Some of them probably shouldn't have, Uh, they would have been far happier, well, more well suited to do a trade or something else. But if you were good at school, you know, those teachers are like, well, we don't get many. So we have to, we have to get them there. Um, Yeah. And uh, you know, I think the big failing of my school um, was, business um at at my school was a non-academic uh prep line so you can either do these university preparatory stream or you can do the you're going to go to trade school or do something else stream and the business stuff was all the other stream and had i been in any of those classes i would have immediately realized that i love that stuff um but that wasn't that wasn't a possibility um, yeah. with the way that our high school system was set up. Yeah. You're, you're putting another lane. They're like, well, Greg is this. And so Greg will go in this lane. You're like, this is awesome. Wait, what, what lane am I in? Wait, do I want to be in this lane? How do I know whether, what, what about lane B? I mean, I'm in lane A. Is, is this a good lane? I'm not sure, but that's, I can understand that. That's like, you know, jumping in and going, wait a second, maybe this isn't the right thing for me. So what was your, what was your first job out of college? Uh, well, I mean, I started working in restaurants and on resorts when I was 14 or 15. So I worked in the restaurant industry from when, yeah, I was 
I remember I, I wasn't old enough to drive. I didn't have a driver's license. So I used to have to get dropped off when I started um, and then right through high school and university. So I was doing that the entire time. And then partway through my MBA, um, I landed a contract with uh, the big telco incumbent here. So uh, what would be the equivalent of AT&T in the US and, uh, you know, doing my MBA, that was kind of the gold standard reliable like, hey, if you're going to be a business person, this is where businessing happens, right? Like that, that was the blue chip. Um, and then I did a small stint uh, marketing for a nonprofit and realized I was really into marketing. And then I, um, I, I did seven years of marketing at a national cinema chain. And that's where I really like realized, okay, this is, this is the thing I like doing. It's this non-brand type of marketing. And that's where I kind of realized um, uh, I really like that marketing sales aspect. It's interesting. So we have a very similar background. Well, not only do we both graduate around 93, which is super awesome. Um, but the, uh, the other side of it is I had my, for probably since I was 15, I worked in restaurants. Um, and that's what I did. And I remember being dropped off too. There was a, 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 a chain in the U.S. I don't know if it's around anymore, but it's called Chevy's Mexican Restaurant. I think there's still one in San Francisco, actually. There's only a handful open. Um, but I'm, I actually started there as a busser and then ended up going literally to corporate and, you know, opening restaurants and stuff. But yeah, I very much that, that you know, their all thing was, you know, the service beyond expectation was kind of what I grew up on of like, hey, you know, excellent service, get chips and salsa there within 30 seconds. And so I was kind of bred that way. And, and mm-hmm. I kind of think about that with what I do currently is I am very, you know, want to make sure people have a good experience and make sure that we have certain standards that we hit. And it's kind of cool growing up in a restaurant. I, I have always said like people need to work in a restaurant at least one time in their life to understand, you know, what you go through and what people go through. Because some people don't really get it. It's like, you know, you, it's great for, for people and, you know, getting to know people. You work with awesome people, you work with jerks, you work with this, you work with that. And I think it's a, a good thing. I told my son, Hey, you're going to work at a restaurant. He's like, I don't want it. And I was like, yeah, you, you got it for at least six months. And he didn't, he loved it. So that's a cool thing. So how did you, I want to talk, and I appreciate you kind of giving me some background there. Cause obviously I'd, I'd like to talk about enterprise sales. Um, right. And I'd like to talk about what you guys are doing over there at, at cloud kettle. Um, and how did you get involved with cloud kettle? Cause obviously you're the president, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, when I was working at the cinema chain, uh, it was a very small regional you know, second tier cinema chain. And I, I don't think anybody who worked there would argue with me on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they were really well funded. And I happened to land there at a point where the cinema industry overall was starting to consolidate really fast. So the mom and pop chains were starting to consolidate into the big national players. Mm-hmm. And so I was really lucky. I landed there and they made their first big acquisition. Um, and then they started making really aggressive acquisitions. And we went from being a very small regional you know, tri-state area uh, kind of cinema chain into the second largest in the country and one of the largest in North America. And as part of that, my first role there was 50% marketing, 50% sales. And uh, I just had this like feeling that there's a better way to do this stuff. And, you know, we used to have this database of people I would call. One of my jobs was I sold um, the ads that would play before the movie. Um, and which makes me a very unpopular person probably, but um, you know, those, those were at the time for a guy who had never really done sales before. Those were big sales and oh, yeah, looking at back sure. at them now, they're not really, but at the time they, and I just felt there was a better way to do this. And we were also, you know, most of our marketing was very analog at the time. And uh, you know, I'd done my MBA and I really focused on these um, what would now be called SaaS companies, although they didn't really have a name then. 
Um, and I just felt there's a better way to do both things. And my role there, because I kept asking for these sided desk projects, really became what would now be called um, sales operations and marketing operations. There was no fancy job for it then, but you know, yeah. I, I remember discovering this company online called Salesforce, and I was like, look, we need to replace these systems that we have right now with this other thing. It's in the cloud. And then of course you have to explain what the cloud is. And, you know, this is a long time ago, this is like over a decade ago, but that's kind of where I got that start. And then I was really lucky uh, that I got recruited to a company called Radian six to again, build out what we'd be called marketing operations now, although it didn't have a fancy name then. And, you know, I hit it perfectly. I got there, I don't know, a year and a half, maybe two years before we got acquired by Salesforce and just had that benefit of seeing, what is the run-up of a fast, high-growth SaaS company prior to the acquisition of somebody like Salesforce? And I got to experience that. And then I really got to work within that machine at Salesforce, which is about the best education on that that you could plausibly get in the world. So yeah, just a really fantastic series of events. And then you know, got recruited away to build what would now be called sales operations and marketing operations at two startups. And then at that second one, eventually became COO and Part of that whole experience was realizing I thought I wanted to be somebody who's in the C-suite and ran a B2B SaaS company. And actually, I don't really want to report to a board uh, necessarily. Mm. And I don't want to be going and doing rounds of fundraising. I, I found that particularly like unpleasant. Um, mm -hmm. And there was just a series of stuff that I just didn't enjoy. And so you know, I just decided, okay, well, I'll start Cloud Kettle and then I can just do this mop sops thing that I really, really love doing. Um, and then I won't have to, you know, do these other things like fundraising and overseeing development teams and these other things that just wasn't, it wasn't my core that I want to do. Thanks, Greg. It was amazing talking with you today. From selling coupons in a neighborhood cinema to a whiz in enterprise sales, that's one hell of a journey you've had. I'm sure you have all enjoyed every bit of today's episode, but folks, this is just the beginning. Greg has lots of secrets and hacks up his sleeve, and he's going to share them all on the upcoming episodes, so stay tuned.